It's Christmas! Well, tonight, thank God it's there instead of you. Oh, Christmas Day, my ass. I'm driving home for Christmas. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. Christmas to you and all. Hello, this is Adam, and this is the Merry Britsmas podcast. And we are in full-on festive mode as we fly into November, which means there's no excuses not to be full-on Christmas. Jumpers, lights, trees, mince pies, music. This month, I'll be releasing two episodes, and two episodes in December, as well as a possible bonus music one close to Christmas Day. In our first November episode... We'll explore a modernised Christmas carol, classic kids' books, and an anti-war Christmas anthem. November 11th is Remembrance Day, informally known as Poppy Day, where we remember the members of the armed forces who lost their lives in the line of duty. We most often think back to World War I and World War II, but it's for all wars and all conflicts that we spend some time on this day remembering their sacrifices. This is usually done at 11am, as the hostilities of World War I were formally officially ended on this time and date. I thought we should consider this important day for this episode, by looking at a song that is very much anti-war and seeking a peaceful future for mankind, an ethos that I think is central to Christmas. You may recognise the opening of the song from the start of a really great podcast. Churchill comes over here to say we're doing splendidly But it's very cold out here in the snow Marching to and from the enemy Oh, I say it's tough, I have had enough Can you stop the cavalry? Jonah Louis was a singer-songwriter who worked with bands such as Brett Marvin and the Thunderbolts before becoming a solo artist. His career jumped after signing with Stiff Records in 1977, a label originally focused on punk and new wave sounds. He had a minor hit with You'll Always Find Me in the Kitchen at Parties in 1980, a brilliant bit of stomping pop rock. Chatting up and always get refined Enough to drive a man to drink I don't do no washing up I always leave the stuff piled up I piled up in the sink But you will always find him in the kitchen at parties Me and my girlfriend we argued And she ran away from home She must have found somebody new And now I'm By the end of this year, 
he found himself with another hit after Stop the Cavalry was unleashed on the British public. He originally intended the track to just be a simple anti-war song without any Christmas intent, until he noticed one line in particular, and the record label also noticed this. No, I didn't think of it as being a Christmas hit. Uh, I just, I, I just wrote a song, you know. Although, after I wrote it, I did notice there was a line in it called "Wish I was at home at Christmas." Yeah. And the record company noticed that as well. And so they released it for Christmas because of that line, I think. Really? That's, yeah. The song does really get a festive kick with the brass band sound that just makes it sound extra festive. The lyrics are very anti-war, with initial focus on World War I, with reference to Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty at the start of the First World War. However, the track also goes on to an imagined future nuclear war, echoing the ideas of a conflict that seems to be ever-present throughout human history, along with the desire to seek peace for all mankind. When the song was released, there was an increasing tension between the West and the Soviet Union. Therefore, the lyrics here, and the sentiment, connected to the people of Britain. The song, however, didn't make it to number one, having to settle for third in the chart, with over four million sales. This was because of two reissued John Lennon songs, soon after his tragic murder in New York. Regardless, the song itself has become a favourite in the UK, and is often on playlists, radio stations and compilations here every single year. So much that Jonah Louie has revealed, it often makes up to 50% of his annual income through royalties. There are not that many well-known covers by big bands, but there are a few interesting ones out there for us to check out. First up is Andy Bell's synth-pop duo Erasure, with an acoustic cover. Hey Mr Churchill comes over here to say we're doing splendidly but it's very cold out here in the snow marching to and from the enemy oh i say it's tough i have had enough can you stop the cavalry i have had to fight almost every night down throughout these centuries how about folk punk with skinny lister doing a live corridor cover indie band The Feeling released a chilled out version. Hey Mr. Churchill comes over here to say we're doing splendidly but it's very cold out here in the snow marching to and from the enemy. Oh I say it's a fire
indie band Waltzburg covered the song for a radio session last year in 2019. Oh, I When I say, oh yes, yet again, can you stop the cat for Irish duo We Cut Corners covered the song in a soft, sweet way for charity in 2014. Something a little different and more classical from the Wedding String Quartet. Finally, one of my new favourite outspoken indie bands, Hotel Lux, covered it last year. I have had to fight almost every night down throughout these centuries. That is when I say, oh yes, yet again, can you stop the cavalry? Mary Bradley waits at home in the nuclear fallout zone. Wish I could be dancing now in the arms of the girl I love.
Here in the UK, there are two books that are real British festive kids classics. The first was written in 1973, and the second, 1978, and they were actually created by an illustrator who decided to try his hand at writing his own books, albeit with a bigger focus on the pictures instead of the words. Raymond Redvers Briggs was born on the 18th of January, 1934. His dad was a milkman and his mum was a housewife. He went to grammar school and then on to Wimbledon School of Art, despite his father's protests. He studied painting and then went into the army for national service, serving by mainly doing technical drawings putting his artistic knowledge and skill to use. After the army he went to the Slade School of Fine Art, graduating in 1957. He became a professional illustrator, working on children's books such as Peter and the Piskies and the Hamish Hamilton Book of Magical Beasts. He also taught illustration part-time in Brighton and won a Kate Greenaway Award for kids book illustrations in 1966. Around this time he decided to branch out to work on his own stuff rather than illustrating for other writers. And uh, then I thought well if it's that easy I'm going to switch to writing because it's obviously miles quicker than illustrating, much better paid. I get paid royalties instead of a lump sum, so I'm going to switch over to writing. But then I found that because it's that much easier to do, um, more, many more people are doing it. And uh, it's much more difficult to make a name as a writer than it is as, as an illustrator, because for every person um, who can draw and paint well enough to get into print, there's 20 who can write well enough to get into print. His first two were both, of course, Christmas-based. Father Christmas came out in 1973, followed by Father Christmas Goes on Holiday in 1975. He won his second Greenaway Award for the first one, and it became a hit for kids across the UK. I talked about the animated TV special of this last December, but today I'll just focus on the book. It features a very British, very grumpy Father Christmas, who lives alone with a cat and dog, moaning about all the stress of Christmas while kind of enjoying the whole thing, and being jolly despite everything. He has to deal with a host of unusual houses on his deliveries, including Buckingham Palace. He also speaks to a milkman in the story, which was apparently a nod to Briggs's father. Later on, Briggs also said that the grumpy but lovable nature of Father Christmas was modelled on his dad. He was doing a job like my dad, delivering stuff in the hours of the day and night, in the freezing cold, alone. The most appalling job you can imagine. Alone all night, going through the sky, freezing and getting down chimney, one chimney is appalling, but getting down hundreds, dreadful. Did you get all that from your dad? It's a incredibly un-Father Christmas mm. traditional thought, isn't it? Well, I based it on his life and their, at their house, where he washes at the sink in the morning and goes to the lavatory out the back, as we had, and goes out uh, delivering in uncomfortable un hours and uncomfortable weather. It's a beautifully real version of Father Christmas that's also very, very British. With one review from Kirkus Review saying, You don't have to be British to take to this very human Father Christmas, but it helps to have an open eye for all the throwaway background detail. One of my favourite facts to come out of an interview with Briggs is that he had one single complaint sent to him from an American reader because of a drawing of Father Christmas sat on the toilet. How dare he? The sequel saw the jovial grump take off on his holidays, visiting Scotland, France and even the US. The film version combined these two stories into one big tale to ensure there was enough ideas and plot points to stretch out for the runtime. Before his final Christmas masterpiece, he unleashed Fungus the Bogeyman, the tale of a working class bogeyman trying to scare human beings. But in 1978, the snowman was unleashed upon the world. 
created it as a completely wordless book, wanting to keep things simple, clean, straightforward. I think this is what's so important and what's so effective. It gives the book a timeless beauty. The story is told through expressions, actions, and the storytelling of the illustrations. It doesn't need the words when the story is so pure and beautiful. For those that don't know, it tells the story of a boy creating a snowman who comes to life. They feast in front of a car headlights, and the snowman flies off and takes him on an amazing journey over the downs of Sussex, near where Briggs lived and where I currently live. In the end, however, it's not a happy finale for these two friends, as the snowman does what snowmen do, especially when it gets a bit warm. In a 2012 interview for the Radio Times, Briggs said, I don't have happy endings. I create what seems natural and inevitable. The snowman melts, my parents died, animals die, flowers die. Everything does. There's nothing particularly gloomy about it. It's a fact of life. I'd argue maybe there is something gloomy about it, but it's rather nice that he's so realistic and he presents this in his stories. It pushes children to accept that level of maturity, to think about things, maybe they're a little bit more um, adult and a little bit more sophisticated. And of course, it's sometimes nice to have a bit of a cry. He has also refuted the idea that the book is a Christmas book, noting that it was only the animated adaptation that introduced this element. Sorry Raymond, I think we all disagree. Again, this was also adapted into an incredibly popular TV animation that's a regular on British TV at Christmas. But we'll explore that in a later episode. Briggs went on to create other works, including grown-up comic graphic novels, such as When the Wind Blows about nuclear war. All of his work has been highly praised and rewarded. He was appointed Commander of the British Empire, a CBE from Queen Elizabeth in 2017 for services to literature. His Christmas books have remained his most popular and known works, perhaps due to the timeless nature and the fact they're able to be summoned forth from family bookshelves and memories every single December. My wife bought me a set of the books for Christmas recently, and it was like going back to my childhood. I eagerly look forward to reading them every year as part of the proper Christmas tradition. If you want some more Christmas podcast listening, how about checking out Seasons Eatings, all about festive food. Have you ever wondered why we sing and eat figgy pudding during the holidays? How does the butter letter from 11th century Rome create the perfect holiday dessert? Join me, Glenn Warren, on Seasons Eatings as we explore the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. So head on over to SeasonsEatingsPodcast.com to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. I'm sure everyone with a slight interest in Christmas knows a Christmas carol by now. Old Miser Scrooge, visited by an old partner, three ghosts, show him the past, the present, the future. He becomes a lovely, kind, Christmassy guy. Or girl, potentially. Regardless, I bloody love it. I read it every year, firstly as a teacher with students, and secondly on my own because it's probably my favourite book ever. The story is sharp, lean, witty, and the focus is on a great idea that there's hope and love in everyone, and we just need support, education, to change for the better. Background and history shape us, but no one is beyond redemption. I always strive to see any version I can, whether it's animated, classic, black and white, televisual, or twisted. I even did a World Cup of Marley's on Twitter last month for Spooky October, 
The winner, of course, Statler and Wardoff, Marley and Marley from The Muppets Christmas Carol. However, the Marley from today's Christmas Carol that I'll be discussing didn't make it out of the first round. We need to go back to the year 2000 to explore the Christmas Carol that I'll be discussing today. It was a made-for-TV one, unleashed on ITV, the third main channel here in the UK, with a very modernised take on the story for the time. Ross Kemp, famed for his role as Grant Mitchell in the classic British soap opera EastEnders, stars as Eddie Scrooge, a loan shark in London who is, of course, uncaring and cruel to those around him. We open on Christmas Eve, with Eddie having a nightmare about someone being shot. It turns out to be his dead former business partner, Jacob Marley, apparently murdered as seen on posters around the estate, and his mother accosting Eddie in the street to demand to know what really happened to her son. Perhaps your conscience won't let you celebrate the birth of our saviour. Nothing on my conscience, Mrs. Marley. Not even the death of my son. He then wanders the streets on Christmas Eve with his assistant, Bob Cratchit, taking and destroying the TV of a family in debt, shaking down two pensioners who need the money for a chairlift, one of whom is played by the always lovely and late Liz Smith, a.k.a. Nana, of the royal family. Three pounds. It's five quid, Joyce, like it always is. But... We're saving up, you see. Oh, really? I never read anything about it in the Financial Times. It's for one of them chair lifts. Joyce's arthritis, you know. It's giving me ten types of chip. There's nothing worse. The air's blue when I'm going up them stairs. Think about it, Eric. A chairlift at Joyce's time of life? Well, that can be a lethal piece of equipment in the wrong hands. You press the wrong button and, well, it could be Horlicks for one, if you get my they can be a godsend, Eddie. Uh... So I'll be having the other two quid, Joyce, and remember, I'm doing it for you. And generally being, of course, a mean Scrooge. Bob, as usual, asks for the day off, but Scrooge mocks him, loving the fact that everyone is in on Christmas, so he can collect more things. You know what I love about Christmas Day, Bob? Everybody's at home. Yeah, it's good that uh, families are together. And what better news for a debt collector than everybody being at home, so... Right and early tomorrow morning, then you'll be home in time for your burnt turkey drumstick. Well, t- Tim's in hospital again. I, I, I was thinking more of the whole day. And I was thinking of inviting Britney Spears over for an eggnog. I'll take that as a no then, shall I? The Fred character here is called Dave, for some reason, and also is a policeman, still the son of his sister, and he rejects the Christmas Day dinner invitation, as ever. Sorry, Uncle Laddie. I uh, didn't mean to make a show of you. I can't stop him on duty. I was just wondering if you're doing anything for Christmas Day. No. Oh, great, because I, uh, well, that is Jane and me. We'd, um, we'd like you to come around for your dinner. No. We'd really love to see you. It's, uh, well, it's Christmas time. Well, that's right, it's Christmas time. When the stupid and the bone idle join forces to celebrate the birth of catalogue shopping. We'll set a place for you in case you change your mind. It's what Mum would have wanted. That evening, the face at the knocker becomes a face on the murdered poster around the estate, before Marley then appears to Eddie. And I love how blunt this one is, as Eddie is curt and freaked. Marley. Eddie. We need a talk. All right. I'm always talking to the dead. You don't believe in me. You're right, I don't. Listen, man. 
I haven't got time for this. I'm dead, you're not. Seems to me that gives me the upper hand. Message-wise. The ghost of Christmas past then appears in the static on the TV. A shocked Eddie looking aghast as it's revealed who the ghost is. This is one of those versions that uses characters from Scrooge's life to make it more personal, and I quite like that take. We first see his mother's funeral in the past and the struggle he and his sister had to go through. After that, we get the Belle moment with Eddie meeting Bella, a nurse, and their initial relationship deteriorates when she gets fed up with him squeezing money out of people. As usual, the obsession with money destroys them. Do you know every time I see you squeezing money out of people, I feel like I don't know you at all. That isn't real. This is what's real. You, me. But I hate what you do, and you know that. And you still won't change. And I can't live like that anymore. I'm sorry. Of course, he gets angry and speaks in a way that reminds me of another recent Scrooge in the world. Well, I've changed. Even me. And you can too. Oh, <laughs> what? And be like you, you mean? You're joking, aren't you? I mean, look at you. You bargain basement. You're a nothing. Everything I've done, everything I've got, I've done for me, on my own, without any help from anybody else. So why would I want your help? Because I can see you're not happy. You know what happy is? It's a painkiller for losers. And I ain't a loser. I'm not like you. I'm your dad, and I want what's best for you. Well, it may have passed you by, but I'm doing fine without you or any of Santa's little helpers. He finds himself back home in front of the TV just in time to wake up for another Christmas Eve. I love this twist on the usual tale. It's like Groundhog Day. However, on this first return, to do Christmas Eve yet again, nothing changes for Scrooge. He continues to take money, even quicker than before, seemingly gleeful instead of worried. He knows where they're hiding the cash this time. Well, do we ever have Christmas Eve twice in this country? You know, like, like in a leap year? No, I don't think so. I'll check. No, I didn't think we did. Bob, you a gambling man? I like a flutter on the national. The wife does the lottery. She had four numbers come up once, but uh, they was all on different weeks. What odds would you give me that I can tell you exactly what's going to happen? Is this one about five feet? First off, Eric, can I have the two quid out of your sock? I'm in a hurry. That evening, he demands the next ghost. I said, I'm ready! You promised me three ghosts, Marley. You promised me three! But then he falls asleep. Another dream of the murder of Marley. He wakes up to find Marley back in his room, in his bed actually. And Marley reveals himself as the second ghost of Christmas present. 
it's a busy night. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. <laughs> You're it. We have a double up. It's the busiest night of the year, haunting-wise. All right. But I don't want to see Bella again. I'll go anywhere with you. But no more Bella. Come on. It's showtime. <laughs> and pay attention this time. He then sees the people he took from on Christmas Eve. They're still celebrating, they're still loving, they're still caring, but he dismisses them, of course. Merry Christmas, love. Merry Christmas, sweetheart. What are they going to be so happy about? Every Christmas they count their blessings. But that can't take them too long. They're in love. They've been in love since the day they met. 51 years ago. Imagine that. What's she filling their heads with that nonsense? She's poor, the kids will be poor. She's giving them dreams. Has broken promises. They've got nothing. I wouldn't say that. So, have we finished the tour of the sad people yet? What makes you think they're sad? We'll put it this way I wouldn't swap places with any of them. Do you think any of them would want to swap places with you? We see the Cratchit family with Tim at hospital on Christmas morning. And whilst there, he sees the nurse, Bella. And fruitlessly, obviously she can't hear him or see him, talks to her saying he's changed. Marley points out he's selfish as the only thing that made him say that is his love life. You, my girl, had a lucky escape. Don't listen to her, Bella. Listen to what your heart's telling you. I love you. I can change. If you love me, I can do anything. That was just degrading, Eddie. How can you say that? I said that I changed. You heard me. Talk about shallow. Everything we saw tonight, what gets to you? Your love life. Self, self, self. And you really think the rest of the world cares about anything else? I'll make it simple. You love Bella because you want something back of her. So? That's not love. That's greed. Before he wakes up for another Groundhog Day Christmas Eve, he is shown two teenagers who have died. A kind of ignorance and want. And these are two teenagers who Eddie sees around the estate, homeless and drug addicted. He sneers at and mocks them. But this Christmas Eve, he kind of tries to be good, but not really. He's sort of a change Scrooge, which is quite interesting to watch, but he's just trying to do what he thinks is good, and seemingly just to get the nurse back. It's an interesting version. He cuts a little bit off people's payback money, gives Bob the week off whilst telling him to tell all the nurses at the hospital, and tries to give a VCR, this was the year 2000, it was pretty good kit back then, to a family whose TV he took on the first Christmas Eve, but doesn't go very well. Uh, not today, Ted. It's Christmas. 
Now, Bob, that woman, Ellie, the one with the three kids, how much does she owe us? Uh, original debt, 300, with interest, 932. Okay, let her off, 200. Go on, cross it off. Don't really get this. Oh, and why's that? Because I'm a... No, I wouldn't say that. No, but I bet you that's what you think. No, no. Who told you that? Now, that sick kitty of yours, the one with the bad chest, um, Tom. Tim, yes, cystic fibrosis. Yeah, well, you tell him that Eddie Scrooge has given his dad a week off. Right. I'll make sure you tell all the nurses at the hospital that, too. The nurses? Yeah, especially if any of them are called Bella. What are you doing, Mr. Scrooge? I'm being nice. Write it down. Well, I don't want anything else. I owe you enough as it is. Think of it as a loyalty card. No. It's a present, you stupid loser! He tries to give some football gear to Tim at the hospital, disregarding his mom's concerns that he has cystic vibrosis and won't be able to use it. Only uh, Bob said he liked football, and uh, I thought to myself, well, he could play a bit of football when his chest gets better. His chest won't get better. That's not what happens with cystic fibrosis. It gets worse. Well, you never know these days. I mean, scientists are always coming up with new things. Now they've discovered DVD. Well, disease could be a thing of the past. And if it costs, I'd like to help out. But within reason, of course. Oh, thanks. You're all heart. He tries to show off to Bella with this, but of course that doesn't go well. Yeah. Oh, hello. What are you doing here? Oh, I've just been to see this sick kitty I know. Gave him his Christmas present. Football gear, I mean, it's not cheap, but, well, it's only once a year. Alright. Bella. Can we go out for a drink tonight? I've got plans. Yeah, I know you're seeing Julie, but. How do you know that? Well, you, you always do. Look, I won't keep you long. I really need to tell you something. I don't think so, Eddie. Merry Christmas. He then encounters the street kids and desperately grabs Bella to try and save the girl who is dying. But that doesn't work out either. What took the ambulance so long? Ambulances won't come on the estate anymore without a police escort. Well, don't say it like it's my fault. Isn't it? Oh, come on, I'm not like that. You saw how I tried to save that kid's life. Then why didn't you call an ambulance straight away? Like I said, I, I thought you'd be quicker. That isn't the only reason, is it? Of course it is. Why me? Why did you come for me? I want the truth. Yeah, well, you always were big on the truth, weren't you? Eddie! All right. I suppose a part of me wanted you to see that I could care. I wanted you to see that I changed. Well, you haven't really changed at all, then, have you? When Marley returns that night, he pushes Eddie into admitting that he helped set up the murder of Marley without knowing it would be murder, and he always knew who did it, but never passed it along for fear of affecting his business. I told Ricky Stiles where you'd be making a pick-up that night. I know. I swear that's all I told him. I didn't know he was going to shoot you. I promise. I just thought he was going to shake you up a bit. I know. If I'd known that he was going to... I'd never have done that to you, Marley. I really wouldn't. So you set me up. You got greedy. 
was just supposed to scare you. So you set me up? Yeah. I set you up. I know. I knew as soon as I died. If you knew all along, then why did you beg me to tell you? Because it's good for you to confess. Conscience-wise. Marley disappears, and Eddie, in a panic, grabs his money, bags it up, and is about to set off in his car when a little boy appears. Eddie seems to recognise him, but the boy won't speak, silently taking his hand and leading him to the future. We see an empty hospital bed and the grieving Cratchit parents whose relationship is broken after he decided to stay working for Eddie. It's very peaceful out there, you know, with grass and trees. And I told Tim that um, we go up there and have a talk with him every week. <laughs> oh, my lad. My poor little lad. So I, th I thought, um, if I could move back in. Uh, no. Just after the funeral. It's no good, Bob. No. Look, I could help with the children. Um, it's hard enough for them. They need me. No, it won't help to fill it with false hope. It'll make it harder when you move back out. It won't work. We should be together at a time like this. We should have always been together, Bob. But you made your choice. But this hasn't got anything to do with Scrooge. You carried on working for him. I'm sorry. No, don't be like this, Sue. Please, not today. Please, not today. Then we see some of the people on the estate buying a bunch of things on market stores and it all looks familiar to Eddie. I thought you'd never die. <clears throat> I know justice isn't mine to give, but well, the man lived by violence. And once you're on that road, it can only end in one place. Well, put like that, I don't feel so guilty. Come on, can I have this? No, put that back. I'm scared that they're floggy. Where's it from? He follows Bella, who meets his nephew at a church gate and demands to know what's happening of the silent ghost of Christmas yet to come. He realises as they walk to his grave and demands answers, but the ghost, of course, as always, remains silent. All right, I get the message. Look, I don't want to see any more. Just tell me this. Are these the things that will happen or just the things that might happen? I know I've been useless. I know I've wasted my life. I, I can see what I've got to do now. I mean, the Cratchits don't have to tear each other apart. Those kids don't need to die. People don't have to suffer because of me. Kemp brings his best soap acting. Overdramatic, but kind of perfect for this role. He's digging at the grave and suddenly fighting his bedsheets. And it's Christmas Eve again. Now we do get the change Scrooge. He fires Bob Cratchit so he can spend time with his family and writes off his debt. He saves the brother and sister way before they become critical, without even saying anything to the nurse. He apologises to Mrs Marley. He brings a big hamper to the elderly couple. Bob, how's Tim? Well, he's uh, not so well, actually. We're all spending Christmas at the hospital. Right, so he'll be needing his dad at a time like this. And his mum, yeah. And you'll be wanting to spend more time with him. Well, it'd be nice, just over the holidays, but uh, as my own mum used to say, you know, it's no use having butter if you don't own a barn cake. Did you really? 
What a wise woman. Oh, I know what it was I wanted to tell you. You sacked. What? I can work Christmas. You sacked, Bob. I'm letting you go. But what about the money I owe you? I'll write it off. Small price to pay for getting rid of you, Bob. You're useless. Hey? What do I do? You think I care? Then go on, get out of my sight. Well, go on! Hilariously, the husband faints and says, Sorry about that, but I come over all quaint when I saw you smile. Well, I'm sorry I shocked you, Eric. He gives him a big bunch of dosh as a payoff for making him faint, claiming they could sue him. He sends a big cheque to the Cratchits too, secretly claiming it as a win for a competition that Bob doesn't seem to remember entering. The best Christmas ever! Oh, we are! <laughs> we really are! Yeah, we are! Yeah. No, it's, it's funny though, isn't it? It's bloody hilarious! <laughs> it, it, it's funny we won. We haven't got any premium bonds. Dad! Hey, hello, darling. Oh. Let's have a look. Tim makes a nice comment that makes everyone laugh too. Well, maybe Mr. Scrooge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, Mr. Scrooge is well going to end it out his money, isn't he? You lovely, sweet lad. You He also gives the name of the murderer of Marley to his police officer nephew, as well as accepting the invitation. Dave, can I? I'll buy you a drink. Actually, I'm on duty, young lady. All right. Well, I don't quite know how to tell you this, but if you're interested, uh, this is the man that shot Jacob Marley. Now, I've written his name down in case you arrest the wrong bloke. I know what you lot are like. He starts. You sure? He keeps the gun in the safe at the back of his car. How long have you known this? Well, I knew that Jacob was meeting Styles. Also, the Styles thought that Jacob was moving in on his patch, so you could say that I've known all along. But you were too scared to come forward, were you? No, I was too greedy. I knew that we were bad for business if Styles was picked up. Come on. The business partner had just been killed. This. this. this can't have just been about money. I'm afraid it was. So. Why are you telling me this now? Let's just say I found a conscience in my Christmas stocking. So? So? I was just wondering if, uh, if, if you'd come over for Christmas dinner. <laughs> I'd love to. I bloody will love to. Uh, until that wife feels to expect a turkey big enough to aspire with Mike Tyson. Uh, actually, um, uh, we're, we're vegetarians. All right, the biggest nut roast she's ever seen. Oh, and a uh, Merry Christmas. He happens to bump into Bella in the hospital when visiting the teenager who is recovering. And in this version, which is quite odd, he tells her everything that's happened, and even odder, she believes him and then reconnects with him. Let me get this right. The last ghost was someone you knew. A child. I felt like I knew him. I don't know where from. It was more like I was going to know him. Does any of this make sense? Don't worry. None of this makes any sense. You think I'm making it up? Give me some credit. 
My only chance to win you back, and I come up with a lie like this. It's got to be the truth, hasn't it? I mean, it happened. How come none of this stuff happens to anyone else? Maybe it does. Maybe they just don't know it. <sighs> or maybe it happened to me because of who I was. Or what I was. And if you're living a life as bad as mine, well, it's going to take something pretty massive to change it. I'm not asking you to believe me straight away. I know you don't trust me. But I'm changing. Well, I've changed. Completely. Well, almost completely. And what's left of the old you? Your ego? Well, the part of me that never stopped loving you. and they kiss just as the snow starts falling. We then jump very quickly to the future. The couple are still together ice skating and their son is filming before coming into shot and we realise their son was the ghost of Christmas future. I think that this version does some of the darker things that the most recent one from the BBC was aiming for in a slightly better way. It updates things to be a bit more modern and dark but keeps the spirit of the original using humour and just a sprinkle of odder, more experimental things. I love the Groundhog Day style of coming back to Christmas Eve. It allows the audience to see the subtle changes or attempt to change as he realises what's happening and begins to try and change his life, therefore affecting the lives of those around him. I quite like the use of Marley as a recurring character too, including as the ghost of Christmas present even though I miss the usual jolly giant. I wasn't sure about a couple of things such as not being able to reconnect with the Cratchits at the end, simply pushing them out of his life, albeit for good reason and the Ghost of Christmas Future being his kid was a little bit odd. I kind of understood the idea behind it, but wasn't sure of the full meaning, maybe I missed something. I wish more TV channels or streaming services would try something like this, a modern update that gives realism whilst maintaining horror and humour that made the original so popular and universal. This version's quite hard to get hold of as well. It's hard to get a DVD copy, they're quite expensive. There are a couple of places online that you can find it, and I think if you're in the US, it is on Amazon. Hopefully, they'll bring out a new DVD version soon. That wraps up another Merry Britsmas, but I'll have another one out soon before the end of November, and then a couple during the best month of the year. It's so close. Please give me a follow on Twitter and Instagram at Merry Britsmas. I share a merry moment each day with British TV, music, films and odd bits, so check it out for a daily dose of British festive celebration. And happy blooming Christmas to you and all. <laughs>